and find something complete. And find something complete and readable. You don't have to have read 20 pages before. And that's, that's a great thing about a book. We love that. Make it easier for research. We love it. We love it. Okay, what's next? You want to play a show? And that way you can take a break and we can add trivia after the show. How do you want to play? Oh, we've got lots of trivia questions tonight. Um, and it's only midnight. Let's see. Um, how about I give one bonus question now? And then and no answers or anything. Just ponder it. And when we come back... The first caller with the correct answer gets a prize. How's that? That sounds good to me. All right. This one has nothing to do with Sibber McGee and Molly. Oh, no. Oh, well, let's do it. I'll tell you what. This one, we will do a Sibber McGee and Molly. It will tell us how many people were listening last week when we talked about this. This is our measuring stick. How did the McGees get their home in Wistful Vista? How did the McGees get their home in Wistful Vista? When the show is over, you can call in and give us an answer. And if you heard it last week, that's fine. It will prove to us that somebody was out there listening to us. <laughs> oh, good. Well, you want to set up the show that we're going to kick, it off, kick off a Fibber McGee triplet with tonight? That would be great. This is one of my favorite wartime shows. It's called The Scrap Drive, and it's from April 7, 1942. This one is identified as the first Super McGee and Molly show to be devoted exclusively to war efforts. It's not a matter of having Alice Darling pop in um, later on or mention something about being available, like joining nurses. This one, this entire show has to do with war efforts. And I'm thinking that some young people and kids might be on track or, or think they're on track by saying recycling is a modern exercise, and it is not. During the war, Americans took recycling really to the wall. So tonight the recycling is about metal, rubber, and paper. And uh, the target is the Super McGee and Molly closet uh, that gets cleaned out in order to make contributions to these drives. Metal, of course, was used in making military equipment and munitions, anything that required metal, um, and especially iron. They, they were very eager to get scrap iron. Paper, now the, the paper recycling was very important. We, we read about Boy Scouts making house-to-house -house calls looking for contributions of newspapers. Do you know what they used the paper for? Uh, I think it was something to do with bomb sites. They were, well... I think that's um, what I seem to remember, bomb sites, for them to, to you know, to help focus when they actually drop bombs on. Uh-huh. Now, that's something that I wasn't uh, able to find or I didn't come across. Mm -hmm. What I did come across repeatedly was that paper was the packing substance used to pack ammunition and bombs. Hmm. Did not know that. Okay. Of ammunition and bombs, and I mean, it was like in the millions of mm -hmm. tons that they were using paper to uh, to do this, and of course, rubber for tires and manufacturing and war efforts. So, I don't ever recall. And this is an interesting thing that I came across. I don't ever recall hearing any show at all. You, the walking encyclopedia, can help me with this. Yeah. 
not one show that ever talked about collecting women's stockings for recycling. Have you ever heard of that in any of the shows? No, I just I just knew because uh, of Luxray or Theater uh, that they would always stress using Lux soap to have your uh, silk stocking last as long as possible. I remember that as well. What I, what I came across tonight, and, you know, I mean, this is my summer lightning here. I just go from one page to another page to another page. I keep on going and one, wonder when I get to the 88th one where I began. But what I came across was that women's stockings were recycled, silk being used for ammunition bags. And I, I didn't find any additional information. I don't know what they meant by ammunition bags, but the nylon was used to make tents and ropes for parachutes. Yeah, I, I was going to make some parachutes. I seem to remember hearing nylon being used for that. Well, there you go. You are right on wow. target again, wow. Walton Hughes. Wow. One night I'm going to come up with something that really stumps you. <laughs> in any event, in this show, uh, with very little coaxing from Molly, one of the things that Fibber surrenders and tosses into the scrap pile is his old set of golf clubs. Now, I'm sitting here thinking... Old or otherwise, how many sets of golf clubs would you find at a recycling center under similar circumstances today? Do you know anybody who would give up a set of golf clubs? I don't think nobody would. I don't think so either. And and think about back then during the during the Great Depression, I I bet the, that might have been the, his only set. Oh, indeed, it was. Yeah. Um, and Molly called it an old set, and mm-hmm. he thought it was an old set. Mm-hmm. But my gosh, during the Depression, and especially in that time frame how many people had golf clubs i mean it really must have been a treasure possession maybe, maybe from the maybe left over from the 20s and that's about it i don't know but there went fibber without a fuss and put his golf clubs on the pile and i noticed that dr smith's least favorite character shows up in this episode his least favorite character, character. uh-huh which was lillian the horse Oh, oh, Lillian is in it? Yep. Oh, for pity's sake. (laughs) I didn't consider Lillian a character. (laughs) That's okay. Lillian, Lillian, I've wondered about that. How they managed to work a horse into the wartime. Well, I was thinking this week, and I was thinking, hmm, that would be an interesting trivia question. Well, I'll just spill the beans. I was thinking, how many pets did Fibber McGee and Molly have in their career? And I can only think of two. Oh, was her, oh, the bird. The yeah, canary. yeah, the canary key. Yeah. Parakeet. Yeah. It wasn't a canary, it was a parakeet. Parakeet, yeah. Um, that's right, they didn't have anything else. I can't think of any. So I was thinking Lillian the horse and the parakeet. They dragged in, or Fibber dragged in a cat, thinking it was the one for a reward one time, but that that's was true. hardly a pet. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we are going to be listening to The Scrap Drive. It's from April 7th, 1942, and there will be a test on golf clubs when we get back. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Patricia and I will be back in 2930, and we'll see if anybody can answer any Patricia trivia question. All right, Patricia, talk you then. We will have potluck, too. Good. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with songs by the King's Men and music by Billy Mills Orchestra. The show opens with Great Day. 
I know it's human nature to put things off, but what about that job of cleaning and polishing your car? Have you bought your can of Johnson's Car New yet? Have you had the thrill of seeing a new car pop right up before your eyes as if you had rubbed Aladdin's lamp? Maybe that sounds a little exaggerated, but I know you're going in for a surprise the first time you use Car New. It's so easy to use for one thing because it cleans and polishes in one application, does two jobs at the same time. Carnu is a liquid. You massage it gently over the finish, and when it dries to a powder, you wipe it off. And there stands your car with its almost forgotten showroom shine. Now, if you want to protect that shine for a longer time and save on your car washings, you add a coat of wax. But first, do that double job of cleaning and polishing with Johnson's Carnu, spelled C-A-R-N-U. It's the easy, labor-saving way to keep up the finish of your car. They say a well-groomed woman gives her tresses a hundred strokes with a hairbrush every... Well, we haven't all got hall closets like the McGee's, but if you're looking for ways in which you can do something right now that will help your country, listen carefully. You can turn this spring house cleaning into direct aid for all-out production by very carefully salvaging from your attic and basement all discarded articles made with rubber or metal, as well as old rags and scrap paper. Rubber and scrap metal are most important. 29 pounds of old rubber will make a life raft for a Navy plane. 12 pounds of scrap metal is half the steel needed for a small machine gun. That's important, isn't it? Sort out all discarded tools, old tire chains, batteries, pieces of pipe, anything made of metal that you can't use. Sort out old rubber tires, torn boots or overshoes, hot water bottles, bath mats. Sort out old clothing, rags of all kinds, waste paper and cartons. Send them to your local junk collector or give them to a charitable organization that's collecting such material. Remember, rubber and scrap metal are most important right now. Your government is asking your help. Make this spring house cleaning your special contribution to victory. job is done, and you certainly have worked hard, McGee. I'll say that for you. <laughs> I'll say that for me, too. You look tired, dearie. Yeah. Say, why don't you go down to the Elks Gymnasium and get yourself a massage? Oh, I can't, Molly. The masseur joined the army. He did? <laughs> I thought he was way over age. Well, he is, but I guess the government wants any old rubber it can get. Oh. <laughs> huh? I said, oh. Oh. Good night. Good night, all. <laughs> This is Harlow Wilcox, speaking for the makers of Johnson Wax Finishes for Home and Industry, inviting you to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This program has come to you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company.
And the date of that show is April the 7th, 1942. Is that right, Patricia? I know it. Oh, God, 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 God. I love that little teeny. Ah, she is, she is, she is part of you. She is such a cutie. Yep. Yeah, yeah. She always comes up with just the right answers. I know it. And you can call teeny if you want at 714-545-2071. It's our number. And we'll love to talk to you during this segment. You can answer trivia, have Patricia Potluck. We have potluck trivia, and I did ask a question that we covered last week. How did the McGee's wind up owning their home in Wistful Vista? Anyone have the answer? And that is a bonus question worth two CDs. Ooh. I think that's pretty cool. That's pretty nice. 714-545-2071. Uh, well, you, you can call and say hi. Well, I have a couple of questions I can just throw out as a general observation to people. Do you have an old radio in your house? If so, can you call and tell us what, what you got? I mean, or are there a new radio show you listen to this week? Can you, you want to call and let us know? Or Great question about the radio. Or what do you like to snack on when you listen to old-time radio? everything. Yeah. Or, <laughs> if you're listening to your computer, are, are you surfing? Are, are you just got it laying on Yesterday USA? Do you have old-time radio wallpaper? You know, give me, give me, give us a little feel. So, 714-545-2071. And, especially what your favorite old-time radio program is, I tend to stay with um, I'll say, stay with comedies and uh, detectives. So let's see what somebody else has. Hello, caller. Uh, hello, uh, Waldman and Patricia. This is Ray calling. Who's Ray? Hi, Ray. Hey, that Ray. Why <laughs> <laughs> are you guys tonight? Oh, we are. Uh, I can't speak for Waldman. I am fine. How are you doing? Real, real good. I really enjoyed that interview. Oh, good. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when he said, oh, you answered all the questions, I thought, this is not good. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. He was such a special person. Oh, he really was. He'd been a great guy to take classes under. Yeah. <laughs> with or without the mustache. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference. I would even take it with the mustache. I was trying to find him on the uh, website during the, uh, the program, and... Uh, uh, I couldn't come up with anything. On which website? Any website? Yeah. Uh, if you put in, if you put in Mickey Smith, M-I-C-K-E-Y, Mickey Smith, and um, University of Mississippi, a couple of places will come up, and you can kind of, as I say, follow the breadcrumb trail to a couple of other places. There isn't a whole lot of information about him out there. Uh, what the most that I found was primarily the books that he had had published, and almost all of them, of course, were pharmacy related. So this was, you know, a double joy talking with someone who had made a transition and and from academia to this kind of a book was just so much fun. But that's probably the best search uh, that you can put yeah. in. I definitely like to get that book, and. Uh... 
You know, it just sounded absolutely fascinating. And, I, you know, of course, I'm a big Fibber fan. I don't know who isn't. I don't know who isn't either. They're in trouble if they listen to the Saturday Night Show, if they're not. <laughs> That's true. Anybody who doesn't like Fibber probably doesn't doesn't want to hear us. So <laughs> but he, he really, I have to tell you, he really made the interview come to life. You know, sometimes, uh, and not that this happens so frequently, uh, but when you hear an interview and and uh, the person answers yes, end of story, <laughs> no, end of story, <laughs> you know, it's like pulling teeth sometimes, but this guy was just, just incredible. I really enjoyed it. Very outgoing, and uh, he had loads of good information and some great thoughts, so I, I agree with you. How did you find him? Alden did. Well, uh, he wrote a book about Faber McGee and Molly, which is at theirmannermedia.com. And Walden keeps track of what goes on up there, and he said, we've got a new Fibber book. Let's see if we can talk with the author. So give Walden. Walden arranges all of the interviews. Way to go, Walden. Thank you, Ray. Yeah, our publisher, Ben Omart, what a good guy. He's in his mid-30s, lives in Japan, and likes to publish old-time radio books. Isn't that something? Isn't that an interesting combination? He has a fair number of books that are not old-time radio up there. Right. But he is really, um, he's interested in old-time radio, and he does a fabulous job of publishing old-time radio books. You would just never find any of these in any other places, ever. Yeah, I, I, uh, gee, I, I should look that up, too, you know. I mean, I, I seem to be getting more and more involved in all this, and I I, I just enjoy old yeah. radio so much, you know. And, and the nice thing about it that his prices are way low. Um, if you go look for other public publications, it's almost triple. Uh, it's, but he keeps them really inexpensively, and uh, I, I have to applaud Ben for doing that. Um, now, what's his site? Uh, Bear Manor Media. Bear Manor, B-A, or Bear, B- how do you spell that? Bear, B-E-A-R. Oh, Bear, B-A-I-R. B-A, B-A, I'm sorry, just like a grizzly bear, B-E-A-R. <laughs> A-E-R. Yeah, Bear. Manor. Manor, M-A-N-O-R. O-R, got it. Media. M-E-D-I-A. M-E-D-I-A. Dot com. And the reason why he named his company, he's a fan of panda bears. Panda stuffed bears. So he named his book publishing company after his stuffed panda bear. Now you mentioned he lives in Japan? Yes. He was, uh, he makes his living writing for Rolling Stone, the uh, music publication during the day. So he was living here in Georgia. I've met him. He is so quiet and so shy. But he married a gal from Japan, and eventually they moved to Japan. Isn't that something? And um, Scott really, really wanted to specialize in old-time radio books, but in order to keep everything going, he had to branch into to some television and to films. But uh, still, if you want to get a book out on old-time radio, uh, he's the one who will always say yes and uh, get it out there. Isn't that something? Yeah. You know, I spend a little time in Japan too, and 
How? In part of service, or how did you? Know? I was uh, I was uh, I was in the service uh, in the '60s, and uh, and I got uh, I got an assignment there for uh, five or six months, and I was studying at the Kodokan, mm -hmm. which is the um, at that time was the university for judo throughout the world. Oh my gosh. And I was in the Air Force, and the Air Force had, uh, at that time, we had, uh, I was in the Strategic Air Command, and we had to teach the pilots um, uh, how to take care of themselves if they ever had any problems. So they sent a handful of us who uh, competed in tournaments and did well um, there. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the culture. I enjoyed the food. Uh, I always said I was going to go back. I never quite made it, though. But, uh, uh, but now, if you had an opportunity? I'm sorry? Would you go back now, even for a visit, if you had an opportunity to do that? It would be fun. Yeah, I really, like I say, I enjoyed the people. And, uh, you know, the first day I got over there, I just bought a a little booklet on how to speak the language. I got on a train and I went down to the Ginza, which would be equivalent equivalent to our loop. And uh, it was really delightful. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people. And uh, I was in training um, eight hours a day, and then I took a little extra at night at uh, what they call Waseda, Waseda University. Uh, I studied Aikido over there at Wasita. He was one of our daytime instructors, and uh, Wasita University is uh, well, well, really well thought of in that country. Might be equivalent to one of our better universities. So it was just a wonderful experience for me as a young kid. You know, I was. Uh, 19 or something like that. Oh, gosh, you wouldn't have that kind of an opportunity otherwise. Not at that age. Not at all. And uh, I took the judo like a duck takes the water. It just uh, it was a natural fit for me. Sounds like fun. Okay. Um, you have to answer Walden's questions. Okay, Walden. My question is, you have an old radio in your house. Um... Not old. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Okay, well, with the next question is, when you're listening to old-time radio, what do you snack on? What do I snack on? Yep. Do you, or do you bother even a snack on anything? Um, I am not much of a snacker. Oh, strike two. <laughs> Good thing Patricia got something. Is this something like... Uh, uh, the little birdie comes out of the sky with Coucho Mark. <laughs> Say the secret word and you win a hundred. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that a great show? It was a great show. Yeah, I really liked that too. It was a great show. And actually, the duck came out of uh, John Goodell and Groucho Marx's own pocket. They came up with the concept themselves and p pulled the money out of their own pocket to give to the winners for that. That, did not, that wasn't part of the sponsor's idea. Now, can you imagine listening to a program like that? And I've heard some others mm -hmm. where the prize is $10 for oh, this question and 15 for that, compared to today's questions that, oh, you just won $1 million. Yeah. And yeah. they answered 
how many digits are there from one to ten? <laughs> the, the questions are just incredible. I, I, and you're right. With information, please, they used to give five dollars for questions that were sent in and used on the air. Yep. Five dollars. Isn't that something? I remember as a youngster, I I won a prize with the Chicago Tribune. I um, I, I you know, with some kind of um, a contest where you. Um, it was a picture, a drawing of some type. I, I can't really recall that well, but I do remember winning, and I won a dollar. Hey. About... And everybody in the neighborhood thought I was rich. <laughs> well, especially if you had a penny candy store or something like that. Oh, oh are you kidding? Yeah. What was your favorite penny candy? Well, you know, um, as a kid, I loved it all. We had something called uh, Dots. They were... There were little candies on a strip of white paper. Okay. And it chewed them off. You got more paper in your mouth, I think. <laughs> and, um, uh, gee, I wonder why that came to mind or nothing else. I, I just loved the, well, I was a real, real big fan of um, the Three Musketeers. And for a nickel, you can get a bar bigger than what they charge a dollar for today. I believe it. You know, Sam, I should go buy one of those. I, I don't think I've had one since I was about 12. We're going to corrupt you here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm kind of an exercise nut, so... Um, Are you? I, I think Three Musketeers is a very wise choice. Yeah. <laughs> did, did a duck come down yet? <laughs> I'm sorry, we don't have $100, sir. <laughs> Maybe Walden does, but I sure don't. <laughs> Walden is the rich one of the pair of us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know they pay you so much money for Yeah, yeah I, run around, I run around looking for a little money here and there. Good to have enough people who have adopted me over my lifetime. What know? a guy, what a guy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. He doubled my salary this week. Uh, well, you should. You should have. <laughs> I was making nothing, buddy. <laughs> we all... <laughs> Everybody makes zero, and we can give them a 100% raise every two weeks. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, Patricia was helping me out tonight. I was looking. Um, I'm going to interview Ann Rutherford on Tuesday. And I was going to her website to look up her radio credits, and I couldn't figure it all out. So Patricia gave me, gave me all the information, so that way I look good when I sit down and talk to her on Tuesday. So... Well, I think you could probably talk to anybody off the top of your head, Walden. I, well, maybe, but sometimes it's nice to have a little, little information once in a while. Especially when you get into those interviews, like you and Shane Ray, the, the one word, the one word answer can get kill me. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, tell me about your childhood. <laughs> yeah, it was fine. No problem. <laughs> We need a little more than that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are rough. Those oh, are oh, rough, yeah. you know. Oh, okay. But you know something, Walden? I think you're a master at it because you go one right after another. I noticed that sometimes when you do a kind of a combined thing with uh, with Bill, mm -hmm. and he, he comes out with two or three, and then the, the thought is completed, and then he shifts it over to you, and you come up with another three or four juicy ones. You know, the real key is, I guess, is having the love of, of what we listen to. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I think that probably makes it easier for you, and it certainly makes it enjoyable for us. I can assure you that. Thank you, Ray. I think I'm blessed that I have really good recall of material, and many, very many times, I don't have prepared questions. What I do, I write if I have to have it. Not always. I write little bullet points that, of uh, information that will, just in case I need to refer to something. Like, uh, I remember looking tonight, and Rutherford was a regular on the Eddie Blacken show. Well, I have a, that helped me recall, because she and Janet Waldo worked together. They were the two girlfriends on that show with Eddie Blacken. So that will lead me into talk about that part of her radio career, and of course the blondie. Just little things that I might forget if we got going somewhere in some other direction. And I very seldom I really ever write any questions out, just because... And I, I think Patricia might agree to this. I think the best interviewers are the ones that actually listen to the subject. And I try to spend my time listening to them rather than trying to drive an agenda. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. One of the greatest frustrations I have ever had in listening to someone interview was a television interviewer who was talking with Bill Gates. And she had a set of questions in front of her, and she did precisely what a beginning writer does. I don't know what her role was in television. I don't even care to know who she was. But a beginning writer will sit there with a set of questions, and no matter what happens, they're going to get through those questions. And this woman sat there with an index card, and Bill Gates started telling her a story or a piece of of Microsoft history, something that was incredibly interesting that she had never asked for, and he was volunteering, and she interrupted him with her next question. Oh. I, I wanted to just throw my fingers around her throat. If she had been sitting in front of me, I don't know what I would have done. And, of course, if the moment was broken, he went right to the question that she was asking. He was, you know, so gracious. He didn't yeah, shut up that... and wait for me, you know. And the moment was lost. Yeah. You know, that's really frustrating because if you're really into something and you're going in that direction, you know, and especially with this uh, old-time radio, you know, because I've learned so much here, you know, and it's so absolutely fascinating to me, you know, because I heard a lot of these programs when I was a kid. I, I, I sat in front of the radio uh, in the uh, early and mid and late 40s, you know, and 50s. Um, I, I remember, you know, I mean, I, I could hear uh, a, a program, a theme, a theme song, and it'll remind me of a certain place in my neighborhood as a child, just automatically, you know. That powerful. And what's unique now is like when you were going back and forth with uh, Mickey Smith is, you know, I mean, he was coming out with some wonderful tidbits. As you did, too. You see, and that's, that's unique for me because I want to hear that. I never knew about Quinn as an example until, you know, I find out, oh, he wrote this, and then he wrote, uh, he wrote uh, some others, including... Hall uh, um, of Ivy. You know what he did before he ever was a radio writer? If I thought really hard, I'd remember. You probably would. Patricia, you know? No. He was a cartoonist. Oh, yes. Are you serious? Yes. That is absolutely right. He was right. a cartoonist in the early 30s, like 1931. 
And funny he, cartoon or political? Must have been funny. Real cartoon? I think funny. Huh. And he came to uh, Jim Million and said, "I want to get into radio." And you know, this is where he's probably before Smackout. So just right around. And see, by the by the late 20s, early 30s, everybody, it was. <clears throat> Not the thing to say that you had your own writer. It was sort of expected that everybody got on and did uh, did their own thing or had written their own material. It was not really uh, acceptable in the show business to say that you had your own writer. Isn't that something? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, and so so what they did. Not a symbol. Right, and what they did. Um, they made a deal with Don Quinn that he wrote the material, and then they agreed upon the fee. Uh, I don't remember if they split it or how they came up with some agreement. And that's how sort of Smackout really started to take vogue. And I think uh, the time for Fermi G and Molly came about in 35, I think they had dual ownership in the property. Oh, so, isn't that something? Yeah, I think, the, I think the Jordans, I have a really good hunch that Jim... And Million Jordan and Don Quinn hit it great. Now, I imagine there was never any problems in the relationship because uh, um, I have heard people ask, what was Jim like in the writing section? And he really wasn't all that uh, domineering. Hmm. Basically, sat, Jim and Million were sat down with Don and find out what were the episodes, and they were pretty much was happy what he came up with. And that's how that working relationship uh, worked for him. It was a remarkable relationship to last as long as it did. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine. Well, he left them to do the Halls of Ivy. I think you mentioned that the other day. Right. Well, Walden. yeah, he, he um, I think what it is, uh, he started writing for Fermi Game in 35. Phil Wesley joined him around 40. Four, maybe 43. Maybe uh, you can start hearing Phil West who get credits. And then uh, by the end of the late 40s or so, uh, they brought in another writer, and then Don created the Halls of Ivy. Now, I imagine uh, he was still group supervising Fibber, but probably was not doing the day-to-day writing of a time when the Halls of Ivy came around 1950. Mm. And, uh, uh, the only interview, and we'll play it sometime, maybe we'll play it today when we celebrate Fermi Game Molly 70. I have a half hour interview he did in Hawaii. Uh, where he talks about writing uh, the whole survivor mainly, and a little bit about Fibber McGee and Molly. You had an interview with him? Yes, uh, it's, an, it's an archive. It was, uh-huh. uh, he, went, he went to Hawaii on vacation in 1951. And more people may or may not know what they would do. NBC would ship out the shows to Hawaii. And so they'd be here a week or two weeks later. And so is anybody looking for old-time radio? Maybe Haran in Hawaii? Start looking for transcriptions out there. Maybe that's where all the lost Fibber McGee and Molly's are at. <laughs> but in the Big Islands, that's how they used to play the shows, were off the transcriptions. Well, Don Quinn uh, went and spent his vacation in 1951, and the local NBC affiliate sat down and recorded a half-hour interview 
and I have that. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. He did not, there's not an awful lot from Don Quinn except his writing of the shows. Am I correct? I think you're absolutely right. He didn't write any memoirs or he didn't um, commit anything to writing other than the shows for the most part. That's why we're going to ask um, Mickey Smith, did he ever look for the, the writings of Don Quinn? Well, the, 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 occasionally nowadays, people, uh, you can go to University of Wyoming, so wonderful, and who knows why. Uh, they've been very aggressive going out for finding radio donations, of library mat- especially writer materials. And so a lot of writers of the Golden Date will donate their scripts and things, and I don't know if anybody ever did that for Don Quinn. So, well, just what I know. You know what surprised me was his comment about not having any information at all from S.C. Johnson. There was nothing. Mm -hmm. I went to their website and looked under history, and the only comment that related to World War II was a sentence about S.C. Johnson guaranteeing people coming back from the war or any kind of service, guaranteeing that their jobs would still be there when they came back. That is the sum total of their notes about World War II. Wow. Isn't it amazing, these wonderful things that uh, so many of them had disappeared or probably mm-hmm. were never copied? Or... Yeah. And, you know, part of the problem is that people who are responsible for things like recording history or keeping track of information or putting up and creating websites with information, they've not had any contact with people, places, or things that relate to the eras that you and I are talking about and Walden knows about. It's not important to them because they don't know anything about it. Mm. And they kind of just get lost. There's nothing in the archives, according to Mickey Smith. They didn't have anything at all that they could offer him. Nobody recorded S.C. Johnson history. How could that have happened? Yeah, Mostly, and I hope that's true, they kept 10 years of the recordings. Eventually, I don't know if they're still at the corporate office or they I'm just thinking in terms of the corporate history Mm -hmm. itself, why they were committed to World War II. They've got information about the founder, that it got turned over. I mean, everything is a little teeny-weeny read bites, I guess is a good way to put it. Maybe one or two sentences with some years on top of those sentences. And there is virtually nothing in terms of corporate history up there. And they have got one of the richest histories in the United States. Yeah, isn't it? And, I mean, and they're still in business, which, you know, you would think they would... Uh... I know. And the company is, um, and this is from my brain, I believe, Walden, you might be able to tell me this, 1898, I think, is when the company... I think you're right, yeah. ...founded. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, they're into their second century now. And there's no history up there. It's just incredible to me. And I guess it's the old saying, though, guys. Corporate history is not always kept very well. It's um, not. And it's it, one of the reasons, Walden, is that it gets passed down from older to younger, um, to younger, to younger, to younger. And eventually it gets to people who say, well, why should we even bother? That's why when Martin Graham went to DuPont, he loved working with DuPont. Because DuPont kept everything, and it actually had a dedicated library to hold all the, rec- all the rec- recordings of the radio series, Cavalcade of America. It kept every corporate documentation. Excellent. Excellent. Somebody had a little bit of foresight. Somebody had a little bit of foresight. And here's another one. 
Uh, Ray, did were you a fan of uh, Captain Midnight when you were growing up as a kid? Oh yeah. Did you know that Ovaltine, the corporate office in Chicago, up to the mid seventy, kept a copy of every radio script? And so people who wrote a book on the Captain Midnight, they they went to the corporate office and could sit down and read every single copy of the radio script. Do they still exist? No. <gasps> they dumped them. What happened? They dumped them. Oh, be still my heart. Yeah. One night I'm just going to flop right up. <laughs> Every time I hear one of these things, my little heart goes bonk. You know, that's kind of frustrating if they got through the 70s, mm -hmm. especially here, because we had this... Uh, this old-time radio guy I listened to for years, Chuck Shaden. Yep. And he retired here a year or so back, and uh, he was like a real hawk looking for uh, material. But uh, imagine somebody just arbitrarily, uh, mm -hmm. oh, let's get rid of this now. And uh, We need the room. Yeah. Well, I think when uh, a couple weeks ago when I sat down um, recorded the interview with Peg Rich, we played it on Sunday night, and the the story she told everybody, if you missed it, it was pretty interesting. Um, she got a call from NBC, an engineer. They were getting ready to dump their transcription collection into the Atlantic Ocean. And they wanted to know, did she want to keep her copies in the monitor block? They found 100, and she said yes. And the rest of them, they went out 10 miles out there and dumped them out in the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. So, uh, that's why I'm really amazed how much we've been able to keep of our history. And a lot of it is floating out there in the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean or whatever. Yeah, it's, I, it, it, it's kind of overwhelming, mm -hmm. you know, because when you think of the golden age of radio, I mean, it was only a handful of years yeah. when you really think about it. And, my goodness, couldn't they hold on to it someplace, somewhere, somehow? And you know what What comes to mind, too, in terms of history and how what we're talking about tonight with, uh, you know, World War II and Fibber and uh, how they won the war and what have you. I can recall, because I have a whole series of the um, Gildersleeve shows uh, with both, uh, both of the original Gildersleeves. Huh? And... And, uh, you know, during the wartime, they would actually break in and give you the war news and, you know, buy bonds and all of that. That's history. You know, that that's just incredible stuff. And I remember that when I was a kid, you know, buy bonds. I used to buy stamps at uh, school and grammar school when I was a kid. How much, how much was it? It was $17.50 in order to buy a bond, right? Wasn't that? Well, these were stamps. The stamps were 10 cents? They, they were like, yeah, I, uh, I'm going to say, you know, a quarter or something like that. And you would um, fill up a, a book and that would be equal to 17 or whatever a bond was, you know. You could turn it in for a savings bond then. Ah, yeah. Got it. Gave everybody the opportunity to save. I remember having paper drives and scrap drives and uh, all that kind of stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know... <laughs> you know, just, uh, I mean, I've, I've, always, I've always been a history buff, and, and to see it so lightly uh, treated in instances like we're referring to is uh, a little disheartening. But, you know, again, look at how much has been saved. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in uh, go 
age of radio heaven here, you know, and covering your station and, and you know, and, and finding these different CDs here. And I really look forward to the, uh, the auction every year, you know. That's a fun time. I, I love that auction. It's one of my favorite times. My favorite day of the entire YUSA year is Super Saturday for the Christmas stuff. Mm. That's my, and then the auction is number two. Uh, listen, did anybody ever guess the um, the role that um, Mr. PV, I believe it was, played on Pippa Guillemali? Oh, well, do you know the answer now? Uh, I don't know that I do. Well, I'll, I'll give you some clues. I, I, I do remember a program... I recognize the voice if you listen real close, but he was kind some kind of a Swedish. Yep. Or, good. Good. Yeah. And uh, okay, here's some clues. You remember what uh, club that Fibber was associated with? Uh, it's it's stuck in the back of my mind someplace. He was a member of the Elk Club. He's got the answer. He just doesn't have the name. That's right. So the Elk. He was the Elk Club. So what do you think the Swedish guy? What was his part in the Elk Club. I really can't remember. He, he the, I do remember hearing uh, hearing the voice. Yeah, he was the janitor. Oh. And his name was Oli. What was it? Oli. 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 <laughs> and his catchphrase name. His catchphrase was just don't even my time. Every time Feber asked him to do something else, I'm just donating my time. <laughs> so I, I was feeding it to Brian Henderson, who yeah. called, and so I was trying to feed it. I figured these poor people are going to stay on forever if I don't. I said, Reason that always stuck in my mind, 
how they, I guess they were uh, just driving across the country or something, right? Exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. I thought this was a real stumper. I never thought anybody would get that answer. Good for you. And I guess, I really kind of guessed the two hours, but when I say I guessed it, you know how some things are in, in the recesses of your mind? Uh-huh. And uh, that just popped out like that. Yeah, well, you had it in your mind because $2 would not be the typical, I don't think, for that time. I mean, we're, we're talking 1935 in the middle of the Depression to pop $2 for a, a barbecue. Um, you know, a raffle ticket that Molly had figured you've got one chance in 222 million. Or so. I mean, it was just the chances of, of having your number picked was just ludicrous. But $2 in the middle of the Depression would be a very unusual number in my estimation. I would have thought 50 cents or a dollar, but $2. So you got that one. Too. You got yourself three CDs, sir. Holy cow. I'm going to be able to start my own radio program. <laughs> you, you hit bingo here. <laughs> Excuse me. I remember uh, from a previous phone call that you like westerns. Is that correct? Yes, indeedy. Lone Ranger. Do I do I remember that one too? Uh, I have almost all the Lone Rangers. I bought it at the auction about three years ago. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, but I'm a fan of uh, Halls of Ivy. Okay. Um, I love uh, Amos and Andy. Okay. I like the six shooter. Uh huh. And um, and uh, you know, if you could get well, whatever you can get on uh, the two CDs is great. You got three. Three. Oh. oh. <laughs> okay, I can fill up with Amos and Andy. I have, mm, gosh, what do I have? Maybe. 300 of Amos and Andy. Oh, fantastic. Oh, uh, we will fill them up with Amos and Andy. How's that? Yeah, that would be fantastic. You've got it. Wow. You know, Patricia, you're going to have to tell me how you do that. I'm not, I, I've never burned a CD. Oh, I just put it in and hit burn. <laughs> um, I ought to try that. I got some blank CDs here. Well, it's... I have a burner at my office uh -huh. that burns like... 25 and 50 I do in business. Wow. You know, that I never did huh? burn an individual one off, um, you know. Off your personal computer. Sure, we can do that. I work on a Macintosh, but the system is essentially the same for burning a CD. So we can exchange some emails about that and get you up and running on that. Yeah, well, Listen, it's been a real pleasure, and many, many thanks for uh, the interview tonight. It was excellent. It was a great show last night, too. Um, that was fun, wasn't it? Patricia was listening to uh, uh, Ray Bream's interview with Frank Brzee. With Frank Brzee. My God. I, I, I thought that was terrific. Yeah. You know, just the flow was just just wonderful, like tonight. So. Um, hey, hey, by the way, we have an announcement. that Patricia has a new interview guest in two weeks. Yes. Oh, we didn't tell about that yet. That's right. Uh, next week, everybody, Patricia will come on around 12.15, 12.30 after the monthly offering from the Radio Association of Colorado, their monthly show. But at two weeks from tonight, uh, that would be Saturday morning, 6 at the top of the show, uh, Patricia gets to have three guests. All at the same time. All at the same time. So she's going to have to figure out how to ask questions to a, a dog, 
let's see, a, a boy, and, and a guy who can handle both at the same time. Right, Patricia? That is absolutely correct. It's Jimmy Nelson, who is the um, performer with the dog Farfel and the dummy Danny O'Day. Both of them are dummies. And uh, Farfel, you might remember, did the Nestle's commercial. Yes, indeed. And uh, who was the voice for that? Jimmy Nelson. Isn't that's uh, you know I know something about him. Aha. Uh-huh. I you know I mean I haven't heard that voice in a long I haven't heard that. Uh, that's just the very best. <laughs> but, uh, that's right. <laughs> he would sing in his uh, falsetto voice. Oh, is this gonna be? Oh yes, Nestle's makes the very best. And Farvel would say. That's exactly right. I love that talk. <laughs> but you're, you know, you guys are doing such great stuff. I, I'm just, I'm just, oh, I'm glad to be part of it God. as a listener. So you, you all have a real good night, and I'm going to hang on as long as I can uh, listening. Uh, and uh, once again, thank you so much for uh, for the quiz. It's always nice to win. I never get tired of it. That's, that's too much fun. Thank you for calling in. And my gosh, you, <laughs> my very best New York, you've done good. <laughs> this, is, this is really over the top. I never expected anyone to get the, the whole deal. You get the raffle, the traveling across country, and how much the ticket costs. That's amazing. Yeah, that really stuck in my mind. I, I, I always enjoyed that. <laughs> Like, Excellent recall. Three CDs will be. I haven't underway. heard that in years. That program, you know, or maybe I read it in Chuck Shaden's book. Well, that might be. I can email the program to you. Oh, that would be terrific. I would be happy to do that. It took me a little bit of time to dig it up because it's got an unusual title. Um, I think well, that might have raffle in there, but I'll I'll find it and I will email it as an attachment. Oh, that would be great. Okay. Okay, guys. Thanks, Ray. Thank you so much, and have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's a good friend, Ray, from Chicago. And you can give us a call at 714-545-2071. I have another Walden question for you. You can answer this one, or uh, Patricia Potluck is still out there. Uh-huh. I have another bonus question. Oh, well, one question is, on Fibber McGee and Molly in the uh, late 30s, I'm talking about around 1937, they had a famous singer. He wasn't famous at the time. He was, a, he was part of the uh, Ted Williams Orchestra, who sang at least one number on the show. He later became a gigantic singing hit in the 1940s became a mega music star in 1950 and had his own TV show. He was still recording hits into the 70s. He lived in Florida. He and his wife were married until she passed away for, I think, over 65 years. So anybody, who who, who am I speaking of? What guy was heard on, as a singer on the Fibber McGee and Molly show in 1937 he was with Ted Wings Orchestra, I think, for nine years. By the major 40s, he started to have major songs throughout the country on his own. 
by the Steffi. He had his own TV shows and was still recording major hits, big hits, into the 70s. I like that as a bonus question. I even know the answer. All I, right. You asked one, and I know the answer. Good. This is a, all right, so we'll put that as a bonus question, a two-CD bonus question. If you can name... Go ahead. The singer. The singer who started on Fair McGee and Maui in 1937. Uh-huh. Was with Ted Wings Orchestra for nine years. Who started to have big hits in the 40s. Had his own TV show in the 50s. Huh? Had big hits even to the 70s, up to 1973. Hello, Carl. You know the answer? I'm a novice. You, you, don't, you don't know Brian Haygood? It's not Donna Novus. It's not Donna Novus. It's not Donna Novus. But you know what Donna Novus is known for? What's that? Does Patricia know what Donna Novus was known for? Donald uh, Duck. No, but very close. Not he, other he, than his singing. He, he worked He worked at the Golden Horseshoe at Disneyland. He retired his singing career after singing Mitt Fairman Game in 1939 by the 60s. At Disneyland, the place is still there. They called the, the Golden Horseshoe, Diamond Golden Horseshoe, where we have a uh, show two, three times a day. And he was the singer that won up his career singing at, at the at the restaurant at Disneyland. I would not have had any way to know that. I don't think. The only way you know that if you had one of the great old-time radio books, what oh. Brian has called or Radio Stars. If I visited uh, Disneyland early enough in in history. Radio stars would tell me that all about Donald Miller? Uh-huh. Really? That way I can check up on you? That's right. That's how come I found out about it. Ah. Well, I better get off the line so somebody who might really know the answer. No, no, no. You know this one. Hi, I know, but it didn't come out at the top of my head, so, you know, so let somebody else have it. No. Well, we want to talk to you anyway. All right. What do you want to know? You like Fibber McGee and Molly? Not particularly. Oh. Oh, across that one off the list. Actually, to be completely honest, I really do like it. It's a great show. It is one of my favorites. Robin knows that. I never asked you in the times that we have talked. Incidentally, we're talking to Brian Haygood from Reps, and you can give a plug for Reps. Which are your favorite shows? The top Um, probably. Well, I like a lot of them. I just don't have my mood at the moment. But, uh, I mean... For comedies, I really like Fibrigi and Molly because uh, it's creative. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously that might change if I heard it a million times. No, I don't think so. I a little bit like Fibrigi and Molly. Um, as far as comedies, um, I kind of like Jack Benny. Jack Benny, though, it, it depends. I think Jack Benny, in a lot of cases, is just like, you know, you're like, you're like visiting good family and characters, you know, because sometimes if you analyze the actual humor involved, it's kind of, it can be corny, particularly like the the later ones where it's more of a situation comedy. Um, some of the ones where it's more bad those slapstick jokes, I don't, I, I, it's not really my cup of tea. I think Weldon would agree, wouldn't you, Weldon? I sure would. I, I'm a fan of the situation comedy, you bet. Yeah, and then so as far as, and I like that, well, you may, you may not sure I'll tell you if I like it or not. can't remember all of them at the moment. I like Bing Crosby. I never used to like the Bing Crosby show, but you know, as I get older and start to appreciate that music, I realize that Bing Crosby is mostly just about enjoying a good song and a little bit of good panther, and if you can appreciate that, it's a, it's good to listen to on occasion. Um, um, I love Dennis Brooks. 
only situation come from uh, from uh, radio days that's actually worth a darn. I think that's a little extreme. I think comedy's <laughs> out there that he had that on his show. He did. <laughs> no, I think there's some other shows out there that I think Weldon would agree that are, qu- are quite good. Very good. I have to admit, though, that Renly, Elliot Lewis as Renly, was such an addition to that show that it, it became a priceless show. Yes. Chris and Alice Faye were good. Renly, or Elliot Lewis as Renly, was spectacular. And I also want to give uh, uh, some credit or some, you know, notoriety, or I can't even speak tonight, um, to Walter Kelly. I thought he really helped on that show as well. Oh, Julius Abruzio. Yes. But, uh, I think Julius, I think if it was just Phil Harris and without the Elliot Lewis and without uh, the Julius character, I think, yeah, I don't think it'd been half the great show no. that it became. No, and that was another one where they all worked together very, very well. Nobody was competing with the other. Nobody eclipsed the other. Nobody took command of a particular scene anywhere. They worked as a unit, and it worked. It just came out great. It did. It did. So, and another, and so as far as dramas, um, I think I always like suspense. Um, but I like the concept of lights out. And interesting to them, I don't think some of the, sometimes the actual stories don't live up to my expectations, but some when they're good, they're good. Um, I think, I don't, uh, Gunsmoke and Dragnet are really good shows, but for some reason, um, when I sit down and I think about listening to that radio show, I don't, feel, I don't think about listening to those. They don't ever really inspire me. However, when I've given them a chance, and I start listening to them about 10 minutes and I'm hooked. So I don't understand that, but, you know, I, mean, I don't understand why I hooked and I really love them, but it, I'm not inspired to listen to a lot. Mm-hmm. I think Walden is on the same page there. I am. I, I, it's, I am on the same page as well. I, I, it's something that I appreciate it, but if I'm going to park down some hard-earned cash, mm-hmm. I, it's not something I buy. But I, I do mm-hmm. I do appreciate it. Mm-hmm. But, um... Fabulous writing, excellent acting, wonderful scripts. It's just not my cuppa. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. I can say that. I am like you. I will not choose that show first, but if I wind up clicking one or listening to one, they're riveting. They're wonderful stories. Yeah. Maybe because, uh, maybe because I think the golden age of radio is the 1940s. Mm, that's a thought. And those show had such a 1950 feel to it. Um, they're not the ones that come up to my mind. I wonder if the sense of reality that came with those two shows intruded on the appreciation. I mean, we're, we're talking about something like Phil Harris and Alice Faye. Yeah. For goodness sakes, there's no reality in that show. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just... Julius in the wall and setting fire to... Yeah, I mean, there's just no reality to that. There's no, no sense of... Um, I mean, everybody knows a fibber. But Fibber got into such ludicrous messes and had such ludicrous ideas and habits. There wasn't a sense of immediacy and reality and living next door. But with Gunsmoke and with Dragnet, boy, you know, if I wanted to hear somebody being shot or listen to a police radio, I can do that and it's not entertainment, you know? Yeah, I think that's kind of where I am. It's like, you know, like even in television today, 
Um, you, you always, I don't watch much of it, but I always read about, you know, these high-winning, appraised court dramas. And I have to admit, about 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I remember somebody in my family was really hooked on uh, Law and & Order, and I watched it for about a season or something. But after I get tired of it, because it's just too straightforward, you know, it's like, you know, I don't need that, you know. I mean, right, it's not, there's no sense of escape. Right. No sense of escape, exactly. And, and I think that's probably why they're so well, well written is because I think that there's a fine balance. When you're writing escapism, there's a fine balance between vulnerability and being unrealistic. Mm-hmm. You know, or not realistic. It's not real enough for people to believe. So it's really actually harder to write something, and I'm not a Trekkie. Or by any means, but but I'll speak to Dimension X even, or X minus one. If you're writing a show like that, which is fantasy or it's not science fiction, but is maybe based on you know things that we don't experience in our everyday world, mm-hmm. and you're like that too, you know you have to be. It's a fine line to create these believable characters, even though you're dealing with unrealistic situations or something that's not known. Like when you're talking about Theory and Molly, those comedies. To be funny, they have to be outlandish. But if they get too outlandish, they become stupid, right? Exactly. They, they become Bozo the Clown. Exactly. Where, where the dramas are so based in reality, some of them, that you just write, you know, about your neighborhood police station, you get an Emmy, or, or you know, everybody appreciates you, but reality, it, it's not very, it's not creative in the imaginative sense. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree. There's no, no, um... You have to work with them. I think we had this conversation one time a hundred years ago that some of the shows make the brain work. And Dragnet, I guess, is a good example to use in that during the show, they're solving a crime, they're looking for a criminal, and you have to stay with them. You have to be from detail to detail, gory um, scene to gory scene. Whereas in a comedy like Phil Harris and Alice Faye, you can kind of sit back and let your brain out to play. Well, I have a friend here at Reps, kind of curbudgeon, actually, and he loves um, all the police stories, all of the, you know, the Sherlock Holmes, um, particularly the ones that are the BBC. He loves all the BBC dramas, and I ask him, hey, do you like this show or that show, or and you know, The Shadow, or Simmergy Molly, or... Not really. Why not? Well, I'm, I'm an adult now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I love the Sherlock Holmes uh, series. I, anything with Sherlock Holmes' name on it, I will click on. But there again, you're suspending reality. We're not in the 1800s. We're not um, with Sherlock Holmes in this very odd and strangely set-up apartment. There's a, a sense of escapism there as well. Exactly, and I, and I think that, well, I think maybe he believes that there is a, such a, because I think, I think that Sherlock Holmes himself, and people may argue with me, but I'm going to stand by, I think that's fantasy that somebody could read that subtle of hints, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, you know? Um, it's, it's a, I, th- I think the time frame and the setting are the two key features for me that mm-hmm. allow me to kind of just play along and not have to work and it's not exercise and it doesn't leave me feeling uh, like I have put an awful lot of time and effort into trying to be entertained and I wasn't, you know? It's, it's an entertainment, whereas the others make me work. They make my brain hurt. Exactly. So this back to this quiz question, though, about 
who these who this guy was on the show, right, Robin? Yeah. 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 Is he still with us? No, he passed away within uh, the last four or five years. I'm not surprised. Who did? The senior. The senior that was asking you to tell me who it was. Okay, well, what were the hints again? He was part of the Fibber McGee and Molly show in 1937. Okay. He was part of Ted Weems' orchestra. Okay, nine years. Okay. Okay, I, I didn't hear that. I don't know who it is. All right. What is it? I'm not going to. I can't say. I'll let somebody else have it. Okay. I'll give you, I'll give you the initials. PC. Okay. We'll put that out at the, at the next clue out there. Is it true? It's true. Okay, P, PC. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, so I'll let you guys go. So this other person, just remember if the initials are PC and... Uh, <laughs> before he became a singer. I know, I know. Pick me. All right, Patricia. No, I'm not going to say it because we'll save that for a trip. Oh, okay. He was a pygmy. Before he became a senior. And that's when I said, pick. Oh, okay. What did you say? What's the answer now? She's not going to let me say it. We're going to leave it out there for somebody to figure it out. Oh, okay. Well, good night, you guys. If you have another question, I might call back in. I might. Okay. We can always do that. Patricia, you want to throw him a trivia question, or should we just throw, or should we wait till? Oh, let me see here. Oh, I have a really hard one here. And it's probably not even fair. Are you ready? Yeah. During World War II, advertisers formed a council that was committed to war efforts. What was the name of the council? Best friends for war efforts? For, to, to support war efforts, yes. Mm, that is a good one. It's not the National Association of Broadcasters? Nope. Hmm, and who headed it? Oh, my goodness. It was support the war effort. That's a good one. It was a conglomeration. I don't think any individual advertiser actually headed it. It was for advertisers. Pardon? Was it like a, a conglomerate of advertisers? It was a group of advertisers who came uh -huh. together and said, we are going to commit ourselves to war efforts, and we will do that either by including them in our in the programs that we sponsor or doing um, public service ads, any number of things that they could do, but they were committed to do it, and they promised to uh, support war efforts in tangible ways. So it was... You know the answer here, Robin? I do. 
Wow. So did you know the answer just because you already knew the answer or because... No, I learned it from Patricia. She, she teaches really well. I never knew this. I actually don't know, but I'm going to go research it, and I will email Robin the answer. Okay. Sounds good, Brian. All right. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there's Brian Haygood, the vice president of Reps, the co-chair for the Reps Showcase, which is June 25th, 26th, and 27th, where we all pull together and put together a good old old old-time radio uh, convention. 714. 545-2071. Do you know who's the senior who initials with PC? Hello, Carl. Hello, Walden. Hello, Patricia. Hi, Jim. Hi. How are you? It's back in, uh, we got, a, that was an interesting discussion you were having with Brian earlier, a minute, a few minutes ago about how some shows affect you and you using your brain versus, you know, I, I, I guess, escape. Mm-hmm. And how, how comedies, you know, I, I, I never was into comedy that much. I mean, I mean, I, I like it. I like the shows you play, and I, I enjoy them. But it, but I guess part, I guess part of it is, if you're going to buy shows from commercial dealers, uh, which is what one of the criteria I always went by, and if you're going to put cash down on, well, on tapes, for example, you. You tend to pick those shows that you that you really enjoyed, or the type of programming you really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Unlike, well, today, for example, I guess with downloading and with MP3s, where you can get a whole bunch of shows on one disc. I guess that's a little different in that you might tend to order more com- you might tend to order more programs now that you would not have ordered. Back when you just had to get like one hour of tape at a time. I think you're right. I think the chances of being introduced to more things is greater today than it was 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. They're more accessible to more people. And as you just pointed out, Jim, they are free for the download. Now, they're not broadcast sound quality, but for people who listen and enjoy and are not sensitive to the different sound qualities if they just can sit back and listen for a good enjoyment of the show. They're free and they're out there for anybody. So I'm thinking the audience must be growing very well. Right, because, you know, when you when you would pay, like, you know, commercial dealers charge mm-hmm. amounts for an hour, like one company that Walden and I are familiar with charged 12 Yeah. Other companies might charge 250 $350, $5, $6. Or, or back in the days of reels, when you get 12 shows on a reel, it might be eight, to 12 to 15 dollars a reel. You, you just, you know, you tended to buy the things. Of course, if you traded and you didn't buy shows and you just bought blank tape and exchanged tape, then you might tend to get more variety than you would say buying them from commercial dealers. Right, right. But when you're paying that much money for a show, you don't want a random sample. You don't want to try a little bit of this and a little bit of that to see whether or not you like it. At $12 a pop, I don't want to see if I like it. Give me something that I know I like. Right. And I think that's what you're saying. Well, and then my thing, too, is, uh, I, I, as Walden knows, I tend to lead towards the 50s dramas, first of all, because I remember the 50s. Right. But the other reason is a lot of the shows that from the earlier times have been played on various Golden Age shows, like 
Chuck used to play them in Chicago, and other people would play them. And where a lot of, in, now I'm talking about in the 70s, you didn't tend to hear, you would hear Phil Harris maybe more than you would Dragnet or Gunsmoke in the 70s. Because I guess to a lot of people, the 50s were recent to a lot of people, where the 40s and 30s were, were really nostalgic. Chuck said one time, one time he played shows from 1956, on his, he did his 1,956, those were the day show, shortly before he retired. And he played shows from 56. And he said, you know, when I started this show in 1970, I never would have played a 1956 show because it was only 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's why I found it so odd. When I started collecting old-time radio shows when I was 10 years old in 1976, and I would hear a Have Gun Will Travel, or one of the types of show, I was say, that's only 15 years ago. That's right. It was, it was an interesting period of my life to be collecting in the mid-70s, being so young, but realizing 15 years is really not that long a time ago. And I, and I, and I guess one person's, you know, one person's nostalgia is another person's, uh, uh, you know, you know, one person, like, there are people I know, I knew a lady, one of my collectors, his mother, had no desire to listen to the show from World War II, and the reason was, she says, I lived through it. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. I, I experienced it, I know what it was all about, and it, it, it's like, you know, for her, it would be like unpleasant memories. I know, I had my grandmother, if you remember, there's the uh, Jack Benny, Frank, no uh, Jack Benny, Frank Knight record album, right. where they show a new age radio. Yeah. And, you know, to get to Frank Knight, he's starting, there's a broadcast where they sort of describe the Patan death march. Mm hmm And when I start, my grand, my grandmother, you could hear the gas. So, here, she was almost reliving the memories mm -hmm. of World War II. Right, and it was vivid, you know, to the people, like, as of our parents' generation, right. our grandparents, right. they lived through it. Right. And it's like... God, why would you want to remember that? You know, you know, like, uh, for us, it's history. Well, we, we had an interesting debate in my classroom, you know, my, in my house about 15 years ago. My Aunt Carol was a, it's a, school, was a, it's a retired school teacher. She wanted to play the Hindenburg disaster for the school kids. These were in the third grade. Yeah. We, my mom and dad and I, because we have heard the recording so often, we, just, we talked her out of it. We thought it would be too graphic to hear the actual explosion of, uh, of the Hindenburg crash and her Morrison right. uh, narration for... Maybe, now, maybe we'll get too sensitive. Maybe kids of this time frame, that would not be a strong, vivid ma imagination for school kids. Since they've seen so much... Uh, I know, guess so. Since they've seen so much on television that's, you know... What do you, th what do you think, Patricia? I think kids are so inured to explosions and people blowing up, as you say, Jim, on television, in movies, I don't think it would have affected them. Maybe not. Even even back then. Yeah. I think it was an extraordinary consideration on your part and your family's part because the kids didn't need to hear it no. at, at third grade level. Yeah. Fifth and sixth grade, maybe that would have been a good deal. Third grade, that's kind of iffy. It's kind of iffy. Well, you could say the same thing about, you know, a number of events, like, but hearing the Murrow uh, description of Buchenwald, mm. too, too vivid for, um, of course, he said at the time, if I've offended 
reminded you I'm not in the least sorry. You know, he was right, very right. specific about that. Uh-huh. But would the kids, or, or even for that matter, hearing a recording of a Hitler speech? Uh, I mean, I mean, true, they've seen it on film, but yeah. listening to it on the radio, which is the way we did it uh-huh. home, those of us that were around then, it's, it's, you know, for us, it's living history. For, and I wonder if it means more to kids listening to the actual recordings and just reading about it in a book. You know, the first time I heard Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, Declaration of War speech incomplete, about 1976 or so over a radio station. And when I first heard it, and this was when I was, t- it was like I was there. Mm-hmm. And the times, and now traditionally, I almost play the one-hour broadcast. And the way that it's set up, you almost feel that you're there. Right. And I, I agree with you, Jim. Reading a piece of history in a book has no comparison. I don't even care if it's loaded with pictures. It has no comparison to actually hearing what was happening. Well, for me, you know, the, 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 for, for my generation, those of us born in the 50s and 60s, probably the most traumatic event of our lives was in November of 1963, uh-huh. Kennedy assassination. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I think listening to the radio, well, most people think of television. They totally forget that radio was there. But with recent discoveries of some of the air checks and things, longer form air checks, hearing the way it sounded on radio, to me... It is so vivid. I mean, the journalists, the way they described it, the way programs were interrupted, the way the networks did continuous coverage for four straight days, mm-hmm. no commercials. And, you know, you, we, we've debated in our class one time, a mass comm class, if a horrible tragedy like that happened today in today's broadcast atmosphere, would networks give up four days of programming? And we came to the conclusion that today they probably would not. They would not. Of course not. They didn't give up four days, um, I don't think. You know, I could be wrong, because even after 9-11... I was just going to say, I don't think anybody gave up entire days and certainly didn't give up advertising after 9-11. They covered it. And in 63, when you think about the three television and the four radio networks, for those from Friday noon through Monday night lost millions of dollars in advertising, you know, that had been booked, you know, probably months before. and But yet out of respect, and I guess the same thing happened when Roosevelt died, too. They canceled advertising. But as far as the dramas of the 50s go, I think, too, the, another factor is the everything changed in the 50s, not just in radio. You had more graphic crime literature. You had more, you had the film noir movies. You had a harder edge, uh, look at, you know, when Gunsmoke came on in 52, that was at the same time that High Noon and Shane were big hits in the movie theaters. So Westerns took on a more adult, uh, I mean, on the screen, they took on a more adult level than just a simple good guy, good guy, bad guy. Uh-huh. I mean, um, and another example would be um, in, in, in literature, you know, you had, you had your John Wayne World War II novels, where, um, or not novels, but movies, where, you know, it was simply good versus bad, us versus them. But in the 50s, when you had military novels, you had things like From Here to Eternity and The Cane Mutiny and other stories that dealt with the 
harder edge of war. I mean, it was, wasn't just simply fighting the war. There was the, the conflict and personality of, say, Captain Quig or the characters in From Here to Eternity. And they were very vivid. And, and you know, the, the 50s were, were a totally different writing and reading experience in addition to movies and radio. And I think you'd probably agree there, wouldn't you, Patricia, about the literature? I mean, novels took on a more hard edge. They did. Uh, edgy, I think, is the correct word. They they became edgy. Again, they mirrored reality so closely and then amplified it. it. It was reality with hyperbole in a couple of places that kept the fiction image but stripped out some of the fun. Right. I mean, war, war, lost, its, you know, when you re, war lost its glamour when you read From Here to Eternity. Mm-hmm. And, and other books I could think of. Uh, the Navy, I mean, the Cannon Mutiny was a far cry from uh, McHale's Navy. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and the same thing goes with uh, the Westerns on radio. The Lone Ranger was a fun Western. Right. Fun to hear the Lone Ranger catch the outlaws, and it was fun to hear the grateful people thanking the Lone Ranger and him not accepting thanks. Mm-hmm. But, but with Gunsmoke, it was, you know, that they were, they, it wasn't just simply someone robbing a stage. These were mean people that Matt Dillon had to deal with. I mean, they weren't just simple outlaws. Some of them were almost psychotic in nature, some of the characters he had to deal with. And it was extremely graphic. One of the things that I used to teach, and with good reason, in writing classes, and I don't think you can ever teach people to write, but you can give them a whole good bucket of concepts and writing rules that they can use and abuse, one of the things that is inviolable is that you never take away the imagination from the reader, ever. Mm-hmm. Once you take away their imagination and you spoon-feed every single detail, you have taken all of the fun out of reading because they're no longer participating. And good guys and bad guys weren't just simple. I mean, there was a lot of complex motivations as to uh, mm-hmm. characters Matt Dillon had to deal with, or Joe Friday, or Paladin. Right. Had to deal with people who, who had various emotional problems or, or uh, family problems or, or problems that they'd lost their family because of an Indian attack, hence, hence their hatred or things like that. And then also, even in your science fiction, of, you know, X minus one was a far cry from Buck Rogers. I mean, you know, when you think about it, because the stories were very. Uh, very vivid, and uh, the same thing could be, I, I, I think one of the better dramas of the 50s was actually Nightbeat. Frank Lovejoy, just, he, it was, you know, the newspaper show, mm-hmm. was just able to convey the hard edge of the city and the people he dealt with. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it was a real reality to it. As far as comedy goes, I think The Halls of Ivy was a very sophisticated comedy. Benita, Ronald and Benita Coleman were just perfect in that show. Yes. I think, I'll be right with you. I think the other thing that was very vivid is the, uh, the marriage with Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin, a little-known NBC series, had a very warmth and charm to it because he was a lawyer and she was his wife, and each there were only about 26 of them. And one week it would be told from his viewpoint, the story, and one week from her viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And it was just so well written. Ernest Canoy wrote it. 
It was so well written and so well done. And the show that Walden and I like, Next Door, well, it was, I guess you could call it a soap com rather than a sitcom because it was serialized and you had to hear the continuing storyline to really follow it. But there was, there was a reality to it where, you know, lost car keys could actually be funny. And it wasn't so much the fact that he lost his car keys. It was the dialogue between him and his wife, what they said to each other, you know. Great. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, with with um, the couple next door, all of the dialogue was believable. It might not have happened, and you couldn't envision yourself using it, but it was believable, and it was the believability that captured people. Well, my, my, my mom and I laughed for years when we heard tapes about the story about when she, um, when her, when the six-year-old daughter, the, 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 he had a headache and he went into the bathtub to take a bath and she put, she wanted to help him by putting bath oil in the tub and it turned out to be green dye. <laughs> he was green, he was dyed green. And it was, it wasn't so much the situation that was funny, it was Alan Munce's dialogue and, and then Betsy, the daughter's way of, of talking to him and just, Greeting on his, you know, she she would say something. He says, "Did it ever occur to you that I might be poisoned?" And just out of the blue, Betsy, being a six-year-old, says, "If you're poisoned, will you die?" That you know, just right out like that. And not that there's anything funny about dying, mm -hmm. but and then to add it to add it all up, <laughs> she uh, uh, one of her playmates calls her, and the parents tell them, "Don't tell." don't tell your friend that your dad has died green. So what she does is, is my daddy died. <laughs> and the neighborhood, the neighbor mother comes over and tries to comfort Mrs. Piper. And, oh, how horrible, how horrible, how horrible. And Mrs. Piper doesn't realize that die and die are two different things. Mm -hmm. And she says, she says, well, I suppose you've called somebody. And she says, I, he wouldn't want anybody to know. And he says, what did you do with... with with him. Well, I just left him in the bathtub. And of course, they're talking about two completely different things. <laughs> and it was just, and it just made, it made you laugh. And the imagine, and of course, I also like the satirist of the 50s, like Henry Morgan and Stan Freeberg and mm -hmm. people like that, because they parodied Bob and Ray. And the reason I like Bob and Ray so much is, and they parodied the radio industry. Everything they did Wally Ballou, the bumbling reporter, the right. parodies of old radio shows they did. I mean, you must admit, they're one fella's family. They imitated one man's family so good. Even the vo you would agree on the voices of the butchers and the barbers. He, he could do Fanny really good, couldn't he? Yes, yes. <laughs> so so that, that essentially is my take on 50s radio. 40s radio, I like a lot of it. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I think for, as far as Jack Benny is concerned, the lucky shows were the best ones. I mean, the 30s, the Jello ones, there was a lot of, I guess you could say, vaudeville type of things. And I guess the Grape Nut ones were similar, but when, when the lucky ones came along and you got to hear the same, you know, what was going to happen each week, you know, with, with Dennis and Rochester and Bill and all of them, it was, you know, it, it really got... By the time, and I, and I have to agree that Phil Harris and Alice Faye, if I had to pick a sitcom, 
was probably the funniest, simply because of just the, the unreality of it. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, especially with Ramley and uh, Julius. But it wasn't so outlandish that you couldn't participate.